Section 14 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 5. Wedding at the Marsh. It was a beautiful sunny day for the wedding. A muddy earth, but a bright sky. They had three cabs and two big closed-in vehicles. Everybody crowded in the parlor in excitement. Anna was still upstairs. Her father kept taking a nip of brandy. He was handsome in his black coat and gray trousers. His voice was hearty but troubled. His wife came down in dark gray silk with lace and a touch of peacock blue in her bonnet. Her little body was very sure and definite. Brangwyn was thankful she was there to sustain him among all these people. The Carriages the Nottingham Mrs. Brangwen, in silk brocade, stands in the doorway saying who must go with whom. There is a great bustle. The front door is opened, and the wedding guests are walking down the garden path, whilst those still waiting peer through the window, and the little crowd at the gate corpse and stretches. How funny such dressed-up people look in the winter sunshine. They're gone. Another lot. There begins to be more room. Anna comes down blushing and very shy, to be viewed in her white silk and her veil. Her mother-in-law surveys her objectively, twitches the white train, arranges the folds of the veil, and asserts herself. Loud exclamations from the window that the bridegroom's carriage has just passed. "'Where's your hat, father, and your gloves?' cries the bride, stamping her white slipper, her eyes flashing through her veil. He hunts round. His hair is ruffled. Everybody is gone but the bride and her father. He is ready, his face very red and daunted. Tilly dithers in the front porch, waiting to open the door. A waiting woman walks round Anna, who asks, Am I all right? She is ready. She bridles herself and looks queenly. She waves her hand sharply to her father. Come here! He goes. She puts her hand very lightly on his arm, and holding her bouquet like a shower, stepping, oh, very graciously, just a little impatient with her father for being so red in the face, she sweeps slowly past the fluttering Tilly, and down the path. There are hoarse shouts at the gate, and all her floating, foamy whiteness passes slowly into the cab. Her father notices her slim ankle and foot as she steps up, a child's foot. His heart is hard with tenderness. But she is in ecstasies with herself for making such a lovely spectacle. All the way she sat flamboyant with bliss because it was all so lovely. She looked down solicitously at her bouquet, white roses and lilies of the valley and tube roses and maidenhair fern, very rich and cascade-like. Her father sat bewildered with all this strangeness. His heart was so full it felt hard and he couldn't think of anything. The church was decorated for Christmas, dark with evergreens, cold and snowy with white flowers. He went vaguely down to the altar. How long was it since he had gone to be married himself? He was not sure whether he was going to be married now, or what he had come for. He had a troubled notion that he had to do something or other. He saw his wife's bonnet and wondered why she wasn't there with him. They stood before the altar. He was staring up at the east window, that glowed intensely, a sort of blue-purple. It was a deep blue glowing, and some crimson, 
and little yellow flowers held fast in veins of shadow in a heavy web of darkness. How it burned alive in radiance among its black web. Who giveth this woman to be married to this man? He felt somebody touch him. He started. The words still re-echoed in his memory, but were drawing off. Me, he said hastily. Anna bent her head and smiled in her veil. How absurd he was. Bryngwen was staring away at the burning blue window at the back of the altar, and wondering vaguely, with pain, if he ever should get old, if he ever should feel arrived and established. He was here at Anna's wedding. Well, what right had he to feel responsible, like a father? He was still as unsure and unfixed as when he had married himself. His wife and he. With a pang of anguish, he realized what uncertainties they both were. He was a man of forty-five. Forty-five! In five more years, fifty. Then sixty. Then seventy. Then it was finished. My God, and one still was so unestablished. How did one grow old? How could one become confident? He wished he felt older. Why, what difference was there, as far as he felt matured or completed, between him now and him at his own wedding? He might be getting married over again, he and his wife. He felt himself tiny, a little upright figure on a plain circled round with the immense, roaring sky. He and his wife, two little upright figures walking across this plain, whilst the heavens shimmered and roared about them. When did one come to an end? In which direction was it finished? There was no end, no finish, only this roaring vast space. Did one never get old, never die? That was the clue. He exulted strangely with torture. He would go on with his wife, he and she like two children camping in the plains. What was sure about the endless sky? But that was so sure, so boundless. Still, the royal blue color burned and blazed and sported itself in the web of darkness before him, unwearyingly rich and splendid. How rich and splendid his own life was, red and burning and blazing and sporting itself in the dark meshes of his body. And his wife, how she glowed and burned dark within her meshes. Always it was so unfinished and unformed. There was a loud noise of the organ. The whole party was trooping to the vestry. There was a blotted, scrawled book, and that young girl putting back her veil in her vanity, and laying her hand with the wedding ring self-consciously conspicuous, and signing her name proudly because of the vain spectacle she made. Anna Teresa Lensky Anna Teresa Lensky. What a vain, independent minx she was, the bridegroom, slender in his black swallowtail and gray trousers, solemn as a young solemn cat, was writing seriously, William Brangwen. That looked more like it. Come and sign, father, cried the imperious young hussy. Thomas Brangwen, clumsy fist, he said to himself as he signed. Then his brother, a big sallow fellow with black side-whiskers, wrote, Alfred Brangwen. How many more Brangwens? said Tom Brangwen, ashamed of the too frequent recurrence of his family name. 
When they were out again in the sunshine, and he saw the frost hoary and blue among the long grass under the tombstones, the holly berries overhead twinkling scarlet as the bells rang, the yew trees hanging in their black, motionless, ragged boughs, everything seemed like a vision. The marriage party went across the graveyard to the wall, mounted it by the little steps, and descended. Oh, a vain white peacock of a bride perching herself on the top of the wall and giving her hand to the bridegroom on the other side to be helped down. The vanity of her white, slim, daintily stepping feet and her arched neck, and the regal impudence with which she seemed to dismiss them all, the others, parents and wedding guests, as she went with her young husband. In the cottage, big fires were burning. There were dozens of glasses on the table and holly and mistletoe hanging up. The wedding party crowded in, and Tom Brangwen, becoming roisterous, poured out drinks. Everybody must drink. The bells were ringing away against the windows. Lift your glasses up, shouted Tom Brangwen from the parlor. Lift your glasses up and drink to the hearth and home, hearth and home, and may they enjoy it. Night and day, and may they enjoy it, shouted Frank Brangwen, in addition. Hammer and tongs, and may they enjoy it, shouted Alfred Brangwen, the Saturnine. Fill your glasses up, and let's have it all over again, shouted Tom Brangwen. Hearth and home, and may ye enjoy it. There was a ragged shout of the company in response. Bed and blessin', and may they enjoy it, shouted Frank Brangwen. There was a swelling chorus in answer. Comin' and goin', and may ye enjoy it, shouted the saturnine Alfred Brangwen, and the men roared by now boldly, and the women said, Just hark now. There was a touch of scandal in the air. Then the party rolled off in the carriages, full speed back to the marsh, to a large meal of the high tea order, which lasted for an hour and a half. The bride and bridegroom sat at the head of the table, very prim and shining, both of them, wordless, whilst the company raged down the table. The Brangwen men had brandy in their tea and were becoming unmanageable. The Saturnine Alfred had glittering, unseeing eyes and a strange, fierce way of laughing that showed his teeth. His wife glowered at him and jerked her head at him like a snake. He was oblivious. Frank Brangwen, the butcher, flushed and florid and handsome, roared echoes to his two brothers. Tom Brangwen, in his solid fashion, was letting himself go at last. These three brothers dominated the whole company. Tom Brangwen wanted to make a speech. For the first time in his life, he must spread himself wordily. Marriage, he began, his eyes twinkling and yet quite profound, for he was deeply serious and hugely amused at the same time. Marriage, he said, speaking in the slow, full-mouthed way of the Brangwens, is what we're made for. Let him talk, said Alfred Brangwen, slowly and inscrutably. Let him talk. Mrs. Alfred darted indignant eyes at her husband. A man, continued Tom Brangwen, enjoys being a man. For what purpose was he made a man, if not to enjoy it? That a true word, said Flank floridly. And likewise, continued Tom Brangwen, a woman enjoys being a woman. At least we surmise she does. Oh, don't you bother, called the farmer's wife. You may back your life they'd be surmising, said Frank's wife. Now, continued Tom Brangwen, for a man to be a man, it takes a woman. It does that, said a woman grimly. 
And for a woman to be a woman, it takes a man, continued Tom Brangwen. All speak up, men, chimed in a feminine voice. Therefore we have marriage, continued Tom Brangwen. Hold, hold, said Alfred Brangwen. Don't run us off our legs. And in dead silence the glasses were filled. The bride and bridegroom, two children, sat with intent, shining faces at the head of the table, abstracted. There's no marriage in heaven, went on Tom Brangwen, but on earth there is marriage. That's the difference between them, said Alfred Brangwen, mocking. Alfred, said Tom Brangwen, keep your remarks till afterwards, and then we'll thank you for them. There's very little else on earth but marriage. You can talk about making money or saving souls. You can save your own soul seven times over, and you may have a mint of money. But your soul goes gnawing, 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 and it says there's something it must have. In heaven there is no marriage, but on earth there is marriage. Else heaven drops out, and there's no bottom to it. Just hark you now, said Frank's wife. Go on, Thomas, said Alfred sardonically. If we've got to be angels, went on Tom Brangwen, haranguing the company at large, and if there is no such thing as a man nor a woman amongst them, then it seems to me as a married couple makes one angel. It's the brandy, said Alfred Brangwen wearily. For, said Tom Brangwen, and the company was listening to the conundrum, an angel can't be less than a human being, and if it was only the soul of a man minus the man, then it would be less than a human being. Decidedly, said Alfred and a laugh went around the table. But Tom Brangwen was inspired. An angel's got to be more than a human being, he continued. So I say, an angel is the soul of man and woman in one. They rise united at the judgment day as one angel. Praising the Lord, said Alfred. Praising the Lord, repeated Tom. And what about the women left over, said Alfred, jeering. The company was getting uneasy. That I can't tell. How do I know as there is anybody left over at the judgment day? Let that be. What I say is that when a man's soul and a woman's soul unites together, that makes an angel. I don't know about souls. I know as one plus one makes three sometimes, said Frank. But he had to laugh to himself. Bodies and souls, it's the same, said Tom. And what about your missus who was married afore you knew her? asked Alfred, set on edge by this discourse. That I can't tell you. If I am to become an angel, it'll be my married soul, and not my single soul. It'll not be the soul of me when I was a lad, for I hadn't a soul as would make an angel then. I can always remember, said Frank's wife, when our herald was bad, he did nothing but see an angel at the back of the looking-glass. Look, mother, he said, at that angel. There isn't no angel, my duck. I said, but he wouldn't have it. I took the looking-glass off in the dressing-table, but it made no difference. He kept on saying it was there. My word, it did give me a turn. I thought for sure as I'd lost him. I can remember, said another man, Tom's sister's husband. My mother gave me a good hiding once for saying I'd got an angel up my nose. She seed me poking, and she said, What are you poking at your nose for? Give over. There's an angel up it, I said, and she fetched me such a wipe. But there was. 
We used to call them thistle things, angels as wafts about. And I'd pushed one of these up my nose for some reason or another. It's wonderful what children will get up their noses, said Frank's wife. I can remember our Hemi. She shoved one of them bluebell things out of the middle of a bluebell, what they call candles, up her nose, and, oh, we had some work. I'd seen her sticking them on the end of her nose, like, but I never thought she'd be so soft as to shove it right up. She was a gel of eight or more. Oh, my word, we got a crochet hook, and I don't know what. Tom Brangwen's mood of inspiration began to pass away. He forgot all about it, and was soon roaring and shouting with the rest. Outside, the wake came, singing the carols. They were invited into the bursting house. They had two fiddles and a piccolo. There in the parlor they played carols, and the whole company sang him at the top of its voice. Only the bride and bridegroom sat with shining eyes and strange bright faces, and scarcely sang, or only with just moving lips. The wake departed, and the geysers came. There was loud applause and shouting and excitement as the old mystery play of St. George, in which every man present had acted as a boy, proceeded with banging and thumping of club and dripping pan. By Jove, I got a crack once when I was playing Beelzebub, said Tom Bronwyn, his eyes full of water with laughing. It knocked all the sense out of me as you'd crack an egg. But I tell you, when I come to, I played old Johnny Roger with St. George. I did that. He was shaking with laughter. Another knock came at the door. There was a hush. It's the cab, said somebody from the door. Walk in shouted Tom Bronwyn, and a red-faced grinning man entered. "'Now you two get yourselves ready and off to blanket fair,' shouted Tom Bronwyn. "'Strike a daisy, but if you're not off like a blink of lightning, you shanna go. You shall sleep separate.' Anna rose silently and went to change her dress. Will Bronwyn would have gone out, but Tilly came with his hat and coat. The youth was helped on. "'Well, here's luck, my boy,' shouted his father. When the fat's in the fire, let it frizzle, admonished his Uncle Frank. Fair and softly does it, fair and softly does it, cried his aunt, Frank's wife, contrary. You don't want to fall over yourself, said his uncle by marriage. You're not a bull at a gate. Let a man have his own road, said Tom Bronwyn testily. Don't be so free of your advice. It's his wedding this time, not yours. You don't want many signposts said his father. There's some roads a man has to be led, and there's some roads a boss-eyed man can only follow with one-eyed shut. But this road can't be lost by a blind man, nor a boss-eyed man, nor a cripple, and he's neither, thank God. Don't you be so sure you're walking powers, cried Frank's wife. There's many a man gets no further than halfway, nor can't to save his life. Let him live forever. Why, how do you know? said Alfred. It's plain enough in the looks of some, retorted Lizzie, his sister-in-law. The youth stood with a faint, half-hearing smile on his face. He was tense and abstracted. These things, or anything, scarcely touched him. Anna came down in her day-dress, very elusive. She kissed everybody, men and women. Will Bronwyn shook hands with everybody, kissed his mother, who began to cry, and the whole party went surging out to the cab. The young couple were shut up. Last injunction shouted at them. Drive on, shouted Tom Brangwen. 
The cab rolled off. They saw the light diminish under the ash trees. Then the whole party, quietened, went indoors. They'll have three good fires burning, said Tom Brangwen, looking at his watch. I told Emma to make them up at nine, and then leave the door of the latch. It's only half past. They'll have three fires burning, and lamps lighted, and Emma will have warmed the bed with the warming pan. So I should think they'd be all right. The party was much quieter. They talked of the young couple. She said she didn't want a servant in, said Tom Brywin. The house isn't big enough. She'd always have the creature under her nose. Emma'll do what's wanted of her, and they'll be to themselves. It's best, said Lizzie. You're more free. The party talked on slowly. Bronwyn looked at his watch. Let's go and give him a carol, he said. We shall find the fiddles at the Cock and Robin. Hey, come on, said Frank. Alfred rose in silence. The brother-in-law and one of Will's brothers rose also. The five men went out. The night was flashing with stars. Sirius blazed like a signal at the side of a hill. Orion, stately and magnificent, was sloping along. Tom walked on with his brother Alfred. The men's heels rang on the ground. It's a fine night, said Tom. Aye, said Alfred. Nice to get out. Aye. The brothers walked close together, the bond of blood strong between them. Tom always felt very much the junior to Alfred. It's a long while since you left home, he said. Aye, said Alfred. I thought I was getting a bit oldish, but I'm not. It's the things you've got as gets worn out. It's not you yourself. Why, what's worn out? Most folks as I've anything to do with, as has anything to do with me, they all break down. You've got to go on by yourself, if it's only to perdition. There's nobody going alongside even there. Tom Brangwen meditated this. Maybe you was never broken in, he said. No, I never was, said Alfred proudly. And Tom felt his elder brother despised him a little. He winced under it. Everybody's got a way of their own, he said stubbornly. It's only a dog as hasn't. And them as can't take what they give and give what they take, they must go by themselves or get a dog as'll follow them. They can do without the dog, said his brother. And again Tom Brangwen was humble, thinking his brother was bigger than himself. But if he was, he was. And if it were finer to go alone, it was. He did not want to go for all that. They went over the field, where a thin, keen wind blew round the ball of the hill in the starlight. They came to the stile, and to the side of Anna's house. The lights were out, only on the blinds of the rooms downstairs, and of a bedroom upstairs, firelight flickered. We'd better leave them alone, said Alfred Brangwen. Nay, nay, said Tom, we'll carol them for the last time. And in a quarter of an hour's time, eleven silent, rather tipsy men scrambled over the wall and into the garden by the yew trees, outside the windows where faint firelight glowered on the blinds. There came a shrill sound, two violins and a piccolo shrilling on the frosty air. In the fields with their flocks abiding, a commotion of men's voices broke out singing in ragged unison. Anna Brangwen had started up, listening when the music began. She was afraid. It's the wake, he whispered. 
She remained tense, her heart beating heavily, possessed with strange, strong fear. Then there came the bursts of men's singing, rather uneven. She strained still, listening. It's Dad, she said in a low voice. They were silent, listening. And my father, he said. She listened still, but she was sure. She sank down again into bed, into his arms. He held her very close, kissing her. The hymn rambled on outside, all the men singing their best, having forgotten everything else under the spell of fiddles in the tune. The firelight glowed against the darkness in the room. Anna could hear her father singing with gusto. Aren't they silly? She whispered. And they crept closer, closer together, hearts beating to one another. And even as the hymn rolled on, they ceased to hear it. End of section 14